Will you join me in Ephesians chapter 4? <clears throat> Ephesians 4, we continue in our look through Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches. And this morning we are going to look at chapter 4 and verse 28. The title of our sermon is Christian Living Part 4. Our keywords for our worshipers and training are work, serve, and need. I wonder if you have ever stolen anything. I think most of us probably would not consider ourselves to be thieves. Perhaps we assume that we really haven't stolen anything, and especially after we became Christians. There was an extensive study conducted last year, and there was an attempt to figure out how much money the film industry was losing because of movies that were being pirated and being sold around the world. And it's estimated that 3 to $4 billion per year is being lost, which is about a third of the industry's overall annual revenue. That's a lot of money for something that most people just sort of shrug their shoulders at and really don't think about all that much. When you see the FBI warning on your screen before a movie, you just sort of want to get it over with to get to the opening credits. Have you ever watched a pirated movie? Another study was done on music piracy. uh, Estimates range in the $12 billion for sales revenue and another $3 billion in loss of jobs because of pirated music. Have you ever downloaded a song that you didn't pay for? All across America, shoplifting is estimated to cost businesses over $33 billion annually. And of course, all of this has a negative impact on the consumer because prices are raised to cover their losses. Have you ever taken something from a store that you didn't pay for? And when we hear about stealing, when we hear about theft, it's really easy for most of us to say, I don't steal, I'm not a thief. But there's a reason I cited statistics for things like movies and music downloaded off the internet and not things like embezzlement and money laundering. You may not be siphoning money off the top at work into a private account, or as much as we would all like to do it, I don't suspect that many of us are cheating on our taxes or engaging in insider trading, but stealing is far more pervasive, not just out there, but in our own lives and in our own hearts on a daily basis in ways that we probably don't even think about. Christians are not immune to stealing Have you ever been given too much money back at a store from the clerk and knowingly didn't return it? Maybe they accidentally didn't charge you for an item at the checkout line and yet put it in your bag and you knew that but didn't say anything about it? Maybe you've been an employee at a restaurant and you've taken more than you're allowed of the food provided for workers or you've given away free food to your friends if they come in. Or maybe, maybe there's something you needed to get done at home and you knew the right supplies to do it were in your supply closet at work and so you helped yourself. That's called pilfering. Or perhaps it's even more subtle for you. How, how about your time? Are you stealing time? 
shaving a few minutes off the time clock at work to do some personal shopping online, or just puttering around the office to avoid having to sit down at your desk and complete the mountain of tasks assigned to you, your employer is paying you to do a job. So to not do that, which you are being compensated to do, is stealing. You're stealing from your employer. In fact, even to take time out of your workday to evangelize your co-workers is stealing time from your employer. And that's something we can easily justify, isn't it? I'm telling them the good news of the gospel. There's nothing more important than that. And you're right, there's nothing more important than telling people the gospel. However, we cannot justify the ends by using a means that God has condemned in his law. So perhaps our initial feelings of personal righteousness when it comes to this matter of stealing aren't so well founded. Whether we assume it's true or not, at first, all of us have stolen. All of us are thieves. We are all guilty, and, and when, we, when we read our text this morning, it's easy for us to wonder how it is that the apostle is writing what he's writing to Christians. It's a bit shocking that he would even have to write to Christians to tell them not to do this anymore. But, but let's not let our own hearts get too far away from us before anyone else needs to think about this text and this application to their life. I need to think about this text and its application to my life. Ephesians 4, verse 28, page 978 in the Blue ASV Bibles. Let's read the text together and we'll see what we can glean from Paul's words here. He writes, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, we need to recall that Paul is writing this verse in the midst of several imperatives that give evidence of new life in Christ. This is a continued thought. It began back in verse 17 where Paul explains what it looks like to be in Christ. Now more specifically, he's addressing uh, our putting off of the old self, our putting on of the new self, putting away our former manner of life, which was corrupt. It was filled with all kinds of deceitful desires. And now we are called to live life as new creations in Christ with renewed minds. And so verses 25 through 32 are descriptions of what this new life will look like. And here Paul is describing, and we've, we've already looked at a few of the things listed. We've sort of he sort of lists them out in this rapid-fire succession. He's, he's, he's just giving us a list of things that we need to take heed of, we need to be aware of. We've looked at putting away falsehood. In other words, being truthful. Being a people who are committed to the truth at all costs. Last time we tackled verses 26 and 27 about righteous anger and unrighteous anger and being sure that we not give the devil any opportunity to tempt us to unrighteous anger and fits of rage. And, and I keep reminding us that we need to think about these things in light of this first section about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. 
All of what Paul is writing here is based on the assumption that a person has new life in Christ and therefore are able to do what he's commanding. In other words, if you're not a Christian, if you are not in Christ, if you're not walking with the Lord, there's no possibility that you will be able to fulfill what's being commanded. It is only the person who is made new in Christ that can look at these commands, that can look at verses 25 through 32 and have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, giving us a desire to obey, giving us the freedom to obey, that we can actually walk in the way that it's calling us to. Because Christians are not obligated to sin. We don't have to sin. And so when we read something in the text that says, put away all falsehood, we are able to read that and say, I am able to put away all falsehood because I'm free from the slavery to sin I was once in and the Spirit enables me to obey. So we need to be thinking about that reality of what God is doing in us as we read these commands. And we get to this command about stealing and working. And I want us to remember that stealing is something that's treated quite prominently throughout the Scriptures. The Eighth Commandment of the Ten Commandments simply says, you shall not steal. And for the person who habitually steals, there are numerous passages that explain such an action may very well be evidence of their not being a Christian, regardless of what they claim about themselves. You'll notice, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verses 9 through 10, we read this. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to explain who the unrighteous are. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, interestingly, in that passage, he mentions... He mentions thieves, he mentions uh, uh, those who are greedy, and he mentions swindlers. Well, why do people steal? Because they're greedy. And a swindler is just uh, is a specific kind of thievery. It's one who uses deceptive practices, and they lie to, uh, to get money or actions from, from someone else. So Paul is reminding us in that passage that if someone is persistent in stealing, he's proving that he's never put on the new self. He's not a Christian, and he will not inherit the kingdom of God. But please take note of the language I'm using if he persists in stealing. If there's no change in him, no conviction about it, no repentance with regard to stealing. This isn't saying that a Christian who sins and steals once or twice is going to lose their salvation or that we should immediately deem them to be a non-believer. But stealing is treated so seriously in the Bible because it's an indication of rotten fruit in our hearts. And the New Testament shows several times that a person who is persistent in stealing is showing no matter what he says he believes... That he's not a Christian. Why? Well, quite simply because one who has put on the new self doesn't act that way. Well, let's look more specifically at the verse. First, Paul tells us what not to do. Then he goes on to tell us what we ought to do instead. 
And then lastly, he gives us a reason for not doing the one thing and for doing the other. So we have a negative, which is, let the thief no longer steal. And then we have the positive, rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And then he gives the reason why, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Very simple this morning. We're going to look at each part of the verse. So the first thing we see is that we must put on the new self and not steal. Seems simple. And again, it may seem surprising that Paul is actually addressing Christians here. If we are actually new creations in Christ with new hearts and new affections and new desires, a heart that longs to please God in obedience, a heart that loves God's law, a heart that seeks to fulfill what he calls us to in his word, that he would be glorified in us, how is it that we would need to be reminded again of one of the Ten Commandments? And most certainly the world would look at anyone who claims to be a Christian and has stolen and say, Aha! I knew you were a hypocrite. You claim to be a Christian. You claim to obey God. But here you are stealing. I knew that this was all fake. I knew nothing was real about what you're saying about yourself. But we have to ask, how can it be? How can it be that a Christian needs to be told to no longer steal if they're new creations in Christ? And you know, it's not only the world who asks questions or makes statements like that, but oftentimes it's something that we will ask in our own self-righteousness of someone else. In our own legalistic hearts, we fail to see how sinful we are. And so when we see sin in someone else's life, we become very condemning. We're not likely to ask the same question of our own sinful desires and tendencies, but we certainly will of someone else's. But if we're surprised by this, if we're surprised that Paul is addressing Christians and that there are Christians who have stolen as Christians, it's likely that we have a wrong view of our own hearts. And it's likely we have a wrong view of what regeneration really is a wrong view of the new birth and what it means to be in Christ. If you're a Christian, let me ask you this. When you became a Christian, did everything about your old life immediately cease? All of your temptations, all of your sinful thought patterns, all of your covetousness and the lust of your flesh, did it all just go away all at once? Of course that's not the case. Because regeneration is not some kind of magical formula. That's what the world seems to think. That's what legalists think about everyone other than themselves. But I might suggest that we consider what the Bible teaches about the reality of regeneration instead of seeking to live up to the expectations of the world. Now, isn't it true of you as much much as it is of me that when we became Christians... There were certain sins in our lives that seemed to disappear almost immediately. While there were other things that we realized soon into our walk that we'd be dealing with and fighting against for the rest of our lives. That's true of all of us. There are some sins that seem to take very little, if no effort whatsoever, to be rid of in our hearts. But we can think of exactly what those sins are in our lives right now that we've been fighting since day one. 
We're not rid of sin completely. We're not completely immune to temptation and falling into it. Paul's own life, as he explains it in Romans 7, tells us that that, it's a completely false way of thinking. There are things in my life that are particular sins that I've had to go to war with my entire Christian life that if I told them to you, you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing that? Just stop doing that. You shouldn't be struggling with that. But you know there's things that you would tell me about your life and the ways that you struggle in particular sins, and I would say, that doesn't make any sense. Just stop doing that. I don't know why there's a difference between us like that. I don't know why the Lord does that. But at the very least, I know that the Lord is using our struggles with particular sins in our lives to keep us humble, to keep bringing us to the end of ourselves that we're reminded over and over and over again that we need Him. We must depend on Him. We cannot rely on our own work. We cannot rely on our own efforts. We cannot rely on our own attempts at fulfilling His commands. We need to grow in wisdom and knowledge of the Word of God. And so we need constant exhortations that are sometimes as simple as saying, Don't steal. Don't do it. Do you ever discipline a child and hear yourself saying something like, We have talked about this a hundred times. Why do you keep doing this? How many times do I have to tell you? But you and I both know we sit here on the Lord's Day and when it's time for us to confess our sins before the Lord, there's a strange familiarity to what we're bringing before Him week after week, isn't there? Do you ask yourself, Why do you do that? Why do I keep coming back to this place? How many times have you been told? You should ask yourself that question. And then what should you do? You should make war against it. Fight it, kill it, destroy it. Do everything you can to get it out of your life. And how do you do that? You look to God. You look, you look to God's word. You look to God's t- commands. You look to God's ways and purposes and designs and be reminded over and over and over again, do not steal any longer. Don't submit yourself to sexual morality. Don't lie. Don't be unrighteously angry. See, we look at these things and say, Paul, we got it, man. This is simple stuff. You're just repeating what we already know. You said it in ten words, God said it in ten words, and now you're saying it in an entire paragraph. And he says, yes, I know. I'm repeating these things because your heart is like mine. So you don't need me to say it once. You don't need me to remind you once. You need to hear it over and over and over again because you need to be reminded to make war against it and to not stand and let it devour you because you're a child of God. And as a child of God, you're putting off that old self. You're putting on the new self. And when you put on the new self, you're all the more aware. You're all the more mindful of your own struggles with sin and you need to be rid of them. And so we need to be reminded, as simple as it is, to not steal. (laughs) Items? Time? Now for the Ephesians, it's evident 
that thievery was something more common than maybe you would expect. It was part of their culture. And even today, especially in a lot of developing nations, it's just sort of a built-in assumption that people are all thieves. And if you can get away with it in some cultures, you have done something virtuous. You should be applauded for your abilities to not get caught. There are entire systems in business and politics that are built around the notion that it runs on corruptions and deceit and thievery. And so for the Ephesians, before they were Christians, they had been brought up into that kind of thinking, with the kind of practice in life. So many of them were unlikely at first to see anything wrong with it at all, because it was so much a part of life. But here Paul instructs them, and as believers, we have the Holy Spirit within us, we have the law of God written on our hearts. We receive biblical instruction. Our minds are being renewed. Our consciences are being molded. We're convicted of our sin and our need for repentance and new patterns of life. This is sanctification. This is God working in us to make us more and more like Christ. So Paul instructs us here, let the thief no longer steal. Don't steal money. Don't steal possessions. Don't steal time. Don't steal ideas. Don't steal from anyone else any longer. Put an end to it. And I hope you're convinced by now that we need to understand this exhortation in the broad way of including many of our own activities in life. The way we do all sorts of things. And not just for the person who robs a bank or a convenience store. We all have a tendency to steal something and use for ourselves that which is not ours to use. So what's the issue behind stealing? What's the heart of being a thief. What's the primary sin issue here? Stealing is something we generally do in secret or we attempt to do, obviously, when we think nobody else is taking notice. It's done in the dark. And the scriptures are abundantly clear that nothing that we do in darkness is any good whatsoever. And what's the motivation of the heart? It's selfishness. Stealing most prominently displays my desire to serve myself instead of loving God and my neighbor. I am upmost in my eyes when I'm stealing. And it feeds this desire of the flesh to want to do whatever it takes to get. And so it locks onto whatever it is that it wants and it goes out to get it. Not by effort, not by hard work, not by not by doing what God has gifted me to do and called me to do in order to get it, but by taking it from someone else. Taking it in a way that doesn't require work, that doesn't require effort on my part. And so the selfish man who steals is not only a thief, he does so because he despises the gift of work and would rather have all that he wants without having to earn it. Listen to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones here. He says, The moment you fail to see the dignity of work and the essential rightness of work, the moment you begin to think in terms of having rather than truly and honestly earning, you are beginning to open the door that will lead to some form of dishonesty. Possession should never be in the supreme position. The mere having, the mere gaining, the mere enjoying is never to be the supreme thing. A society, a country, a world which begins to despise labor and effort is proclaiming that it is godless. 
And any failure to realize the dignity of work proclaims the same thing. The whole nation, excuse me, the whole notion of obtaining the maximum and giving or doing the minimum is utterly irreligious. It is profoundly unchristian. But who can deny that it is something that is affecting every stratum of society today? There are drones and parasites in every class of society. But it matters not what class it is. Any man who thinks in terms of what he may have and he may enjoy with the minimum of effort is a drone, is a parasite, is a denier of the very essence of the Christian teaching. The problem is not a political, but a spiritual one. Now, I didn't know you didn't think you'd come and be called a drone or a parasite today. But the point is clear, right? If we are unwilling to do, using what God has gifted us to do, to earn, and instead would rather simply have by taking, we are proving that our selfish desire, the want of our heart, the want of our flesh, is lazy, is unwilling to submit to God because we think that we know better. So we can say Paul's exhortation here is don't be selfish and don't steal. But instead, what does he tell us to do? The second part of this verse this morning, the second thing he tells us to do, to put on the new self and labor honestly with your hands. This is the positive command. Don't steal was the negative and now the positive. Labor, doing honest work with your hands. Be productive. Now, I wonder what you think about work. You know, our culture, so much of it is built around the idea of not working. Everywhere you look, it seems there's an effort to get you and I to do all that we can as quickly as we can so that we don't have to work anymore. But work is a gift. Work was first given to Adam in the garden. It was given prior to the fall of mankind. So work is not a product of the fall. It wasn't as though Adam and Eve were going throughout each day just lounging. They weren't just sort of sleeping in as long as they wanted to, sipping wine at noon, strolling down the beach in the evenings after a round of golf, eating caviar and foie Every night for dinner, servants feed them grapes as they fan them with large fans. No, right after God creates man, we read in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work and to keep it. And as man has been created in God's image, man has been created as a worker because God himself is a worker. It's right there in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. God works, and he works now. God must work. Even this very moment, this very second, God must work, or all 
things will fall into complete and total chaos. God is keeping it. He is holding it all together. And by his providence, he's working it all out to fulfill his will. God is a worker and we are created in his image to be the very same. And that means men and women have the responsibility to harness and utilize all of the resources God has given us for service and enjoyment. And it comes through laboring with our hands. So what exactly is work then? The dictionary has a lot of definitions of work, but for our purposes, I want us to think about work in this way. Work is any physical or mental activity in order to achieve a purpose or a result, especially in one's job. Now, I want you to note that the definition doesn't include anything about pay, Because there are legitimate forms of work that don't include receiving a paycheck, like being a stay-at-home mom or a housewife. That's a really important and a very difficult job. And guys, if you don't believe that about your wives, stay home with your kids for half a day. But work can be anything from a pastor and his study, believe it or not, a carpenter in his wood shop, a roofer on top of a house, a mom at the park with her children, a counselor listening to someone's story, a manager at a fast food restaurant, a computer programmer sitting in front of his screen. It all comes in different forms. It certainly comes in the form of that which provides an income in most cases, but not always. And of course, nobody denies that work is difficult a lot of times. That is a result of the fall. After Adam rebelled against God, his work was cursed, and God promised that it would be filled with difficulty. And we know those difficulties. Equipment. And you ever have a copy machine jam up in the office? People. Coworkers. People you have to do projects with. Resources not working the way you hope they will to achieve whatever you have to do. There are deadlines to meet. There are schedules to get filled. There are contractual agreements to uphold and on and on and on. And all of this can get messy. It can get difficult and it can tempt us to be anxious and overwhelmed at times. So it's not easy by any means. And the temptation of the flesh is to want to just run away from it, to escape all of it, and to rush to leisure and to ease. So much so that the mantra of our lives and our culture is that Monday is the absolute worst day of the week. And thank God it's Friday. (laughs) We forget that the work we do from Monday to Friday or whenever you work is a gift from God. That's not something to despise and run from. And if we run from work altogether, our temptation to survive is to steal. So you see work here as the positive response to stealing. And, and notice, Paul doesn't say what I hear Christians say about their sin sometimes. If you're a thief, pray that God would change your heart, and then once you have a conviction about it, then stop. Listen, sin is sin, whether you're convicted about it or not. 
The proper response is to know God's command, and whether or not you feel like it, you obey God's command. And you repent of the fact that you don't feel like it. And you seek to be conformed to him all the more. He is so gracious that he has given you the remedy. Don't steal. And the way you can keep yourself from stealing or having a sinful desire to do so is to work honestly, to labor with your hands, to make an honest living. You can look at any culture, any society throughout history and find in that society that their greatest days, the most applauded, the most prosperous, the most wealthy, the most orderly, the most peaceful days of any society are the days in which the people of that society had a work ethic that refused to incentivize laziness, that refused to let stealing go unpunished, and that refused to let anyone get by without working if they were able-bodied and capable of doing so. We should want that for ourselves, for our families, for our church, and for our neighbors. And it's not loving anybody to help them to not do that. And it's interesting, Paul uses the word labor in verse 28. It's actually a word with a very strong meaning. It means to work to the point of fatigue. So this isn't just working, it's working hard, it's toiling with great energy, it moves to the end of producing something of great worth and dignity. And in Paul's day, work wasn't eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, work was 12 hours a day, six days a week. That was work. And that's a very Christian thing. We need to recover what the Bible teaches about work. It's a gift. It's important. It's necessary. And if we can work, but we refuse to do so, we have no right even to our basic needs. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul closes out his letter with a warning against idleness. He says, We command you, brothers, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And then he goes on to say, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Brothers and sisters, the supreme objective of our daily time is not to be sent seeking to obtain as much enjoyment and pleasure and leisure as possible. It's to be laboring diligently, going to bed tired out, living as godly men and women, not as sluggards who seek to build ourselves up by taking from the labors of others and attributing it to ourselves. Well, very quickly, he tells us why. Why is it important? Why is all of this important for us as Christians? The last thing he tells us is to put on the new self that you may love and serve your neighbor. When you meet someone who has retired from whatever work that they've done for many years, you learn that those who are wise, they don't quit working, they just take up another kind of work. Sometimes it's paid and sometimes it's not. But for those who think retirement means leaving work for a life of leisure, it's very common that you see they've found a complete lack of meaning in their lives. Why? Because they were made to work. And why are we made to work? So that we have that which is necessary to love others and to serve them when they are in need. 
That's what Paul says here. Why do I have money? Why do I have stuff? Well, the text is telling us not so that we might look at it in a way that a thief does, not looking at it as being merely for myself and what I can get out of it. No, not at all. It's, it's just the fact that I'm a steward. I'm just called to hold on to the things that God has given me and to be a wise manager of those things. But they're not meant simply to be for my personal gratification. And this can help us in making wise decisions about our work. A lot of times you may be asking, if you're looking to change your job or something else, or you have several options, what job should I take? Is it okay for me to take a job for the simple reason of making more money? Well, maybe. Motives are everything. So the question we should be asking is, what's most useful for me to love and serve in the kingdom of God that my neighbor might be helped by it? Whatever that is that you have opportunity to do, do that thing, and therein you find pleasure in your work instead of being tempted to steal, instead of being tempted to gain for personal pleasure alone. Do all that you can with all that God has given you to work for the good of others. We need to work because it's a good thing. And if we make money doing so, we need to give to those who are in need, doing all the good that we are able with what God has given to us. And the Lord Jesus Christ reminds us it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul is telling us, be like that. Be a giver, not always seeking to be a receiver. So ultimately, Paul is exhorting us to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What was he like? Philippians chapter 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So again, Paul says to the Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Christ didn't steal the things that actually rightly belonged to him anyway. No, for our sake, he became poor, and he lived in this world as one who was poor, with no home and with nowhere to lay his head. Jesus' life was completely and totally different than the life of the thief. And that's the difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. Being a Christian means being like Christ. And when we hear the command, do not steal, we hear it with, instead, be like Jesus. Work hard with your hands and use the fruit of your labors to be a servant to others. And maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you hear all this and you say, so what? Of course the Bible tells you not to steal. It doesn't take being a Christian to know that that's wrong. But this isn't just moral teaching. Because it's only a Christian that says, don't steal. Instead, work hard and do that so that you can serve others. And how can we do that? We can do that because we put off the old self of selfishness. And we put on a self-serving attitude and desire. 
we put on sacrifice and service. We've put on living for the good of others like our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that you will look to the Savior who gave himself as a servant, even though he owns all the world and all that's in it. He gave himself as a ransom. So there's, there's one thing in the world that means more than anything else that you don't have to labor for. There's one thing in this world that is most important that you don't need to work for, and that is your salvation. Christ died that we might live, not toiling so God will accept us, not working hard to make him approve of us, not spinning our wheels trying to accomplish something so that he'll receive us, but simply resting in him, knowing that because Christ worked on our behalf, In my salvation, I might find complete and total acceptance apart from anything that I have done in myself. And as a result of the work of Christ, I am now free to work hard to the glory of God with no fear of messing up, no fear of losing, no fear of falling away because Jesus has given me all that I need that I might live. And if you aren't a Christian, today is the day that you can look to Christ, to the one who has labored on behalf of all who will believe upon him. That there is life in his work. And it frees us up to know that it's far more blessed to give than to receive. Because he first gave to us. So brothers and sisters, let this mind be among you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Give sacrifice. Be like Christ that you might work for all the right reasons, that he would be glorified in you, that you not be tempted to work out everything in your own selfish desires.